Welcome to the Movie Planet Season 6, Episode 10. This week, we are talking 1999's Fight Club. With Joe. This is a person. He's a friend of mine, and we're not going to bury him in the fucking garden. He was... And Steve. His name is Robert Paulson. His name Shut is up. Robert Paulson. This is all over with. His name is Robert Paulson. His name is Robert Paulson. Welcome to the Movie Planet. Joining me is the Tyler Durden to my narrator, Steve. <laughs> How you doing, buddy? <laughs> I'm doing good. I didn't really realize that they never did give his name and his name in the credits is narrator. Yeah, exactly. They call him Cornelius because that's, that's one of his name tags at one point or Robert or, but yeah, he has no name. Yeah. It took me a while to like, as I'm going through these notes, I'm like, why is it just narrator? Then I tried to think of the guy's name. I'm like, oh uh, yeah. Yeah. He doesn't have one. I almost put in there Ed Norton just over and over again, but I'm like, nah, because it's not about Ed Norton. <laughs> no, it's a narrator. I knew exactly what you were talking about. Well, speaking of things you knew you were talking about, this week you nominated Fight Club for the Drama Pantheon, and you and I both were thinking this will be a really good one. We thought mystery, possibly drama. It's clearly a drama. Uh, but we were kind of high on this when we initially thought, let's do this. Yes. No, I was excited to do it. This was just kind of a cult classic. It's kind of one that, you know, for you and I saw back in the day that we just really loved. And I think even when the first time I mentioned it to you, many, many conversations ago, you were like, oh, <laughs> and yeah, we were both excited to do it. I think still going into it, we were excited to do it before we saw it. Then yeah. we realized, oh, yes. Right. Steve, did you feel the same way I did? And I know we'll talk about this later, but did you feel like you aged out of this movie? You know, I'm. you brought it up. And then when I started to watch, I, a little bit. Yeah. I think towards the end of the movie, it just got so over the top and that line was crossed. And I think even at the time when I initially watched it, I think, okay, that's where, that, that that's too much. Yeah. I'm not. And so, I mean, uh, yes and no. Okay. I didn't really, really feel that way, but I can see both sides of the coin. Well, uh, this week we're doing the drama Pantheon. It consists of seven and only seven films. Currently, the films in this preserve are Whiplash at number one, Lost in Translation at number two, Silence of the Lambs at number three, Castaway at number four, but The Breakfast Club at number five, and I Am Sam <laughs> at number six. As you can see, I've lowered my grade on that one. Uh, Significantly. Yes, wow. Josh and I both agree. Yeah, this is not a great movie. Uh, but Steve, are there anything, are there any grades you want to alter from previous shows? Uh, or maybe you want to add some grades to this, perhaps? So when looking at this list, yes. I've never seen Lost in Translation. That's a no. Okay. And, and to be honest, that one just doesn't draw me any interest. Okay. I'm not a huge Bill Murray fan unless it's a back-in-the-day comedy. Castaway, I saw that in the theater. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, you know, I'm not going to get into details. I went with a buddy of mine. And I might have been slightly, <laughs> how can I say this? That's PG. I don't know. Um, not not in the right frame of mind. 
I'm gonna let your mind explore that. I got gotcha. you. And I thought Wilson was talking to me, and <laughs> I was not in the right frame of mind. But when I saw it again, it wasn't until I was back at home. But I liked it. I thought it was a great movie. Um, yeah. I would definitely give it a B plus. A B plus. A B plus. Okay. I don't know if it's technically A worthy, but it's a very very strong movie. Um, obviously. It's a movie of very little words. It's a lot of, um, I don't want to say action, but it's a, it almost gets you in the feels. Okay. And you can feel what he's like on there. And usually when I start talking about that, that's where it starts to get to the A plus kind of moment. But it, I don't know if it's necessarily A plus worthy. Looking at everything kind of above, I don't want to put it above Lost in Translations, which you guys talked very highly on without me kind of seeing it. Yeah. Science of the Lambs. Um, I think I would put that. I look at your 88 and I, I think I totally agree with that. 88? For, for Science of the Lambs. So it would be plus as well. So Castaway and Science of the Lambs, I put in the same field. So you think they're both 88s? Correct. Okay. Well, all right. Well, it doesn't change the pantheon a whole lot. Now that we've handled that business, let's get down to business. Okay, this week we are talking about 1999's Fight Club, a movie made for about $65 million that brought in $101.2 million. It brought in uh, an additional $36 million. Well, I guess. I wonder how much, is that just in theaters? Because I wonder how much it did after that. Yes, that's just theater take. Okay. Yeah. Written I feel by, like it would have done more but like on VHS sales or DVD sales. Written by Jim Ools, based on Fight Club by Chuck Palahniuk. Directed by David Fincher, architect of Alien 3. Oh, I didn't even know it was a Fincher movie. This is a Fincher movie. This was the movie he did. He did two movies uh, between Alien 3 and this. One was Seven. Never seen it. And the other was The Game with Michael Douglas. I think I remember seeing that. Yeah. So that was a Michael Douglas, Catherine Zeta Jones movie, I think. I don't know. I could be wrong. Gwyneth Paltrow was in that. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but he's kind of honed his skills uh, to get to this point from Alien 3, which is an absolute disaster, despite what Josh mm -hmm. thinks. Uh, music by <laughs> the Dust Brothers. And boy, does this thing EDM. Yes, it is. It's every damn scene. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it, which one do you think has more techno in it? This movie or The Matrix? Matrix. <laughs> it opened October 15th, 1999, which is Matrix's year. Yeah. It opened a it, it opened at $11 million, just beating out Double Jeopardy with Ashley Judd. Oh, that's not much yeah the story of us came out that weekend some other movies that were out were three kings american beauty random hearts superstar the sixth sense was in its sixth week there uh so it didn't exactly have a whole lot of competition but it was american also beauty, in I've... it was also in Go a ahead. thousand less theaters than double jeopardy okay i feel like american <laughs> beauty was another one of those weird type movies. That was a Kevin Spacey movie. Yes, Kevin Spacey, Mina Suvari, yeah. Okay. 
But you can see in the theaters how it was released. It was only released in 1,900 theaters. Double Jeopardy was in 2,900 theaters. Oh, okay. <laughs> so you got to imagine if Fight Club was in more, it probably would have made more. And I'm willing to bet that the Sixth Sense had probably been in there for a while. Yeah, that number to the left of it, that six is how many weeks it's been in there. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, Okay. Runtime, two hours and 19 minutes. This is a long one, Steve. It was long. Rated R. It felt long. Starring Ed Norton as the narrator, Brad Pitt as Tyler Durden, Helena Bonham Carter as Marla Singer, Jared Leto as Angel Face, Holt McCallany as the mechanic, Zach Grenier as Richard Chesler, and for the second time on the Movie Planet podcast, Meatloaf as Robert Paulson. His name, His name is was Robert, Robert Paulson. Paulson. <laughs> <laughs> According to IMDb, this movie had a bunch of taglines, and I got them all listed here. Which one is your favorite tagline for the movie? We've got, you want me to read them off, or you, you can read them? I'll read them. Okay. Uh, how much can you know about yourself if you've never been in a fight? I mean, I understand it. When you wake up in a different place at a different time, can you wake up as, as a different person? I like that one. Yeah, that one. I mean, all of these make you think to that nth degree. Yeah. Losing all hope is freedom. Mm. Don't ever talk about it. Experience that on Blu-ray. I don't, I don't even remember that one. No, that was a Blu-ray one. Oh. Mischief, mayhem, soap. Dumb. <laughs> mm. Works great even on blood stains. Oh. Um, last one. It's just was the German. It? It's just the German of it. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I guess mine uh, is the- definitely be, be, be between the top two. I think I like the first one. Okay. Yeah, mine's mine's the second one. I, I like the second one because I think it's that's such a good quote, especially when it happens in the movie, because he says it at the same time that you see a flash of Brad Pitt on the screen. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Which I didn't even start noticing this. And this, I mean, it's just the tip of the iceberg of all of the metaphors and quotes that are in this movie. Oh God, yes. Like, I want you to hit me as hard as you can. <laughs> that one, and then the other scene that I think about is when Tyler Durden's going like, whoa! Yeah. Whoa! <laughs> when he shoots the gun at him? Yeah. Yeah, and he's got the all the nitroglycerin behind him in the van. <laughs> exactly. Well, Steve, do you remember seeing this for the first time? What'd you think? Uh, I did not go to the theater to see this one. I think this was a movie I saw for the first time when I was in college. It was kind of a cult following, almost like a rite of passage. Like, if you haven't seen Fight Club, you know, you haven't really seen anything. Oh, you need to sit down and watch this. So I'm pretty sure that's when the first time I saw it. Okay. Um, how about you? Uh, yeah, I remember seeing it on TV. I did not see this in the theater. Uh, I remember, this is around the time that I remember like getting into movies that were very quotable. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, the Pulp Fiction, obviously everybody knew that one backwards and forwards. I know at the time the big movie that was going around cult wise was Boondock Saints. I hated it, but I know everybody loved it. Uh, I was into that really witty and fast paced dialogue. It's cool and subversive to how normal movies sounded. And it was so anti-establishment. Yeah. And you're young and you're like, yeah, fuck the man. And, and it was hitting me at the right time in my life. Yeah, when those three movies you pointed off, I think I probably all saw those in college. Pulp Fiction, Boondock Saints for sure. Yeah. I like that. I would actually put that over Fight Club. 
And I think another one would be like The Big Lebowski, all those cult following movies. Yes, your mad love for The Lebowski. You know, I and that... <laughs> and yet you've I'm never nominated of, it. <laughs> I know, because I think of it at all the wrong times. I can't wait to do that. But I'm nervous because I feel like you'd rip it a new one. I. It's been a while since I've seen it. I saw it maybe twice. And I wasn't... I saw, you know what, Steve, I fell into the same trap that you fall into with movies, which is it was so overhyped that when I saw it, I was like, this is what everybody's talking about. This is an average movie. See, a buddy of mine in my first year at Central, he loved it. Favorite movie all the time. Like every other night he'd watch this movie. Yeah. And to the point where he would just fall asleep with it on because he loved it so much. <laughs> and I was like, I've never even heard of this movie. Oh, we got to see it. So he finally got me down to watch it. And it wasn't, I wasn't at his level, but I was like, this is really cool. I loved it. It was extremely quotable. Yes. Almost every line out of Je or Jeff Bridges' mouth or um, John Goodman's mouth is, or even uh, almost all the characters, it's very, very quotable. Shut up. You're out of your element. <laughs> yeah. This isn't Nam. We have rules. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's go into Inception to Perception where we find out how this movie came to be. Don't get on the set, get ready to shoot, and then ask for rewrites. Studios do this crap all the time, and they wonder why they end up with a shit movie. Smoke and mirrors, guys. Welcome to the movie factory. Movie? You know, I hate the word movie. I don't make movies. I make films. Uh, the novel Fight Club by Chuck Palahniuk. Ugh, I'm just going Chuck P at this point. It's too difficult last name. It was published in 1996. Before its publication, a Fox Searchlight Pictures book scout sent a gallery proof of the novel to creative executive Kevin McCormick. The executive assigned a studio reader to review the proof as a candidate for a film adaptation, but the reader discouraged it. They didn't want to do it. McCormick then forwarded the proof to producers Lawrence Bender and Art Linson, who also rejected it. Producers Josh Donnan and Ross Bell saw potential and expressed interest. They arranged unpaid screen readings with actors to determine the script's length, and an initial reading lasted six hours. The producers cut out sections to reduce the running time, and they used the shorter script to record its dialogue. Bell sent the recording to Laura Ziskin, head of the division Fox 2000, who listened to the tape and purchased their rights to Fight Club from Chuck P for $10,000. So this was a book. It was a book first, and they never really came up with a script. They just created a reading for it and sold it on that for $10,000. Have you ever read the book? I've never read the book. If this it movie- It feels like it would be a graphic novel, not really a book. It really does. The way it's shot, at least, feels like it would be a graphic novel. Yes, yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah, Ziskin initially considered hiring Buck Henry to write the adaptation, fighting, fi finding Fight Club to the, to the 19th- Finding Fight Club similar to the 1960s. I got words. They're fun. Okay. <laughs> similar to the 1967 film, The Graduate, which Henry had adapted. When a new screenwriter, Jim Ools, lobbied Donnan and Bell for the job, the producers chose him over Henry. Bell contacted four directors to direct the film. He considered Peter Jackson the best choice. Wow. <laughs> but Jackson was too busy filming The Frighteners in 1996. In New that, Zealand. Yeah, this is not Peter Jackson no. movie. <laughs> then Brian Singer received the book, for, but did not read it, of X-Men fame. Yes. Uh, and his first movie, The Usual Suspects. As a Brian Singer? Yes, it was his first movie. Ooh. 
well, this would have been right up his alley. Yeah. Danny Boyle met with Bell and read the book, but he pursued another film. The book was also sent to David O. Russell, but he couldn't understand it. <laughs> David Fincher, who had read Fight Club and had tried to buy the rights himself, talked with Ziskin about directing the film. He hesitated to accept the assignment with 20th Century Fox at first because he had an unpleasant experience directing the 1992 film Alien 3 for the studio. <laughs> I would understand the hesitation. If you recall, listeners, uh, this was David Fincher going into a job, realizing sets were already built for a script that didn't exist. <laughs> uh, I cannot stress enough, and I think you'll agree with me. I think I do. I Actually, I agree with you. The making of Aliens 3. It's People awesome. need to watch that. It's People awesome. To, that. <laughs> uh, to repair his relationship with the studio, he met with Ziskin and studio head Bill Mechanic. In August 1997, 20th Century Fox announced that Fincher would direct the film adaptation of Fight Club. So they got him on. Uh, wow. The rest of this is really casting, which is kind of weird because producer Ross Bell met with actor Russell Crowe to discuss the candidacy for the role of Tyler Durden. Okay. So at first when I said, cause this is the first time I'm seeing this. Yes. At first I was like, no, but then I thought Russell Crowe can play crazy because he kind of is. In fact, <laughs> then he was still pretty thin. Yeah. This was, uh, what, 1997, 99. Yeah. That was gladiator time. Yes. So, eh, I can see it. Uh, producer Art Linson. So, Bell met with Crow for D Durden, and Linson, who joined the project late, met with Pitt regarding the same role. <laughs> because Linson was the senior producer of the two, uh, Pitt got the role. That's <laughs> <laughs> already starting off at a bad note. Right. Like you got two producers going to meet two different people. Oh, man. Pitt was looking for a new film after the domestic failure of his 1998 film, Meet Joe Black, and the studio believed Fight Club would be a more commercially successful, with a, which is ironic, with a major star. The studio signed Pitt for a U.S. $17.5 million. Oh, he, he, earned every, he put every penny of that in, I'll tell you, because he acted his ass off in this movie. The funny thing about Meet Joe Black and the failure that it was at the box office was it would have been worse if the trailer for Phantom Menace wasn't attached to it. Oh. That got people in the theaters. And what happened was they started they started putting the trailer to Phantom Menace at the end of the movie because they realized people were going in to see the trailer for the Phantom Menace and then just leaving. <laughs> That's Star Wars. <laughs> it really is. Yeah. My sister, my younger sister, loved Meet Joe Black. Really? But she was also kind of obsessed with Brad Pitt. Aww. Did she have a little picture of him on, his wall, on her wall? Probably. Aww. For the role of the unnamed narrator, the studio desired a sexier marquee name, such as Matt Damon, to increase the film's commercial prospects. It also considered Sean Penn. And I think Sean Penn would have done a very good job with it. He's kind of quirky. Yeah, I kind of like both of those. Uh, Fincher instead considered Norton based on his performance in the 1996 film The People vs. Larry Flint, uh, which was the Larry Flint... Uh, was it Hustler or Penthouse? Yeah, Hustler. Hustler, yeah. Uh, did you ever see Primal Fear? No. Okay, Primal Fear, it's on my voodoo. Check it out. Okay. It's about a guy who gets arrested uh, for uh, murdering a priest. And he's this okay. very meek guy. But if you watch that movie, you'll see this and go, 
I'm wondering if they saw this and said, that's who we want for Ed Nor that for this job because he's okay. awesome in it. And there's a great twist in the middle of this thing that you throws you through a loop completely. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, other studios were approaching Norton for leading roles in developing films like the talented Mr. Ripley and man on the moon. Uh, Ripley went to Matt Damon. So these are kind of like the du jour yes. guys at the time. He was cast in Runaway Jerry, but the film did not reach production. 20th Century Fox offered Norton $2.5 million for Fight Club. Pitt got 17.5. Norton got 2.5. I mean, uh, that's a huge drop off. But this is the thing with Norton. He could not accept the offers, offer immediately because he still owed Paramount Pictures a film. He had signed a contractual obligation with Paramount to appear in one of the studio's future films for a smaller salary. Norton later satisfied that obligation with his role in the Italian job. So they got Norton for pennies. Yes. And he clearly has the bigger role in the movie. I would consider him the main character. And <laughs> Norton and, and Pitt is the side character. Uh, I see an Iron Man situation happening where Terrence Howard got paid oodles of money yes. and Robert Downey Jr. got paid like $300,000 for the job. <laughs> yeah. But Pitt, he bust me. Okay. I, I, I see those parallels. Yeah. I yeah. See uh, Fincher's first choice for the role of Marla Singer was Janine Garofalo. She was kind of the... Uh, sarcastic girl of the week, if you will. Yeah. Uh, while Fincher initially stated that she turned it down because she objected to the film's sexual content, in an interview in 2020, Garofalo revealed she did not accept the part, because, but was dropped because Norton believed she was poorly suited to the part. I agree. The filmmakers considered Courtney Love. She would have done well in this. Yeah. And Winona Ryder. Oh, I don't know. No, she's too quiet and meek. She's not crazy enough. No. The studio wanted Reese Witherspoon. No. <laughs> I yeah, couldn't no, imagine I Reese Witherspoon doing this. Greek, wanted... no, no. <laughs> no. No. Legally Blonde? No. Yeah. Uh, so Bonham Carter got the job, and she plays crazier than a bag of cats better than anybody. She's perfect. Yeah. yeah. Okay. You ready to get into this bad boy? I'm in, Okay. Sir. The first rule of Fight Club is, you do not talk about Fight Club. The second rule of Fight Club is, you do not talk about Fight Club. Third rule of Fight Club, someone yells stop, goes limp, taps out, the fight is over. Fourth rule, only two guys to a fight. Fifth rule, one fight at a time, fellas. Sixth rule, no shirts, no shoes. Seventh rule, fights will go on as long as they have to. And the eighth and final rule, if this is your first night at Fight Club, you have to fight. We back out of the webbing of neurons and brain cells as the title credits appear, finding ourselves emerging from a pour on the sweat glistened gun of the protagonist, our narrator as he looks down the barrel of a gun that's been stuck in his mouth. The gun is held by a man named Tyler, who checks his watch, counting down to ground zero before he is asks if the narrator has anything to say. The narrator mumbles through the gun before it's removed and says more clearly that he can't think of anything. 
As Tyler looks out of the high rise window to the dark city below them, the narrator recalls just how he met Tyler before stopping himself and bringing us to the beginning of the story. Opening credits. Strange how they are the neurological in theme for a movie called Fight Club. However, it's an Easter egg. <laughs> yeah, and I didn't really know. It's You don't really know what it is until, obviously, it zooms all the way out. But you start to get that feeling um, more, more that the credits roll on. And it's, it's something neat to have as you're rolling the credits in the beginning of the movie. Um, but, yeah. I could. I wouldn't be able to think of anything if I had a big old barrel sticking in my mouth. Like, uh, just don't kill me. <laughs> and, and honestly, because the spoiler to this movie, the big twist in this movie, is so important to what it is, I'm going to term the phrase KTS, knowing the spoiler. Okay. Okay. Because I'm going to put it out there right now. Spoiler, everybody. Here it is. The narrator and Tyler Durden are the same person. Yep. They are the same person. It's just, he's projecting at times. So there are other clues here that the Tyler is the narrator and vice versa in the dialogue. I know this because Tyler knows this. And that's where this movie is so freaking clever. Oh my God, it is. And it really does kind of start off with a bang, doesn't it? Like yes. you are thrown into a high intense situation. Right. This doesn't start off slow. No, no. Uh, the narrator tells us that he hasn't slept for six months. His job as a traveling product recall specialist for a car company doesn't help his insomnia since he must travel often, experiencing bouts of jet lag. In addition to the everyday stress of his position, admiring the tiny life of single serving soap and shampoo at every location. If he can't sleep, he surfs the channels or browses through Fernie, a parody of Ikea, catalogs, purchasing the next piece of decor to add to his apartment. He's a self-proclaimed slave of consumerism. He goes to his doctor seeking help, but all the doctor will do is suggest a herbal supplement instead of drugs and that the narrator visit a small group for testicular cancer to see real pain. There the narrator meets Robert Paulson, the big moosey and an ex-bodybuilder and steroid user who suffers from an extreme case of gynecomastia due to hormone treatment after his testicles were removed. Bob is quite willing to hug the narrator in support. Stuck between Bob's enormous breasts, the narrator finally finds peace and bursts into tears. Emotional release allows him to sleep and he subsequently becomes addicted to support groups, mapping out his week, attending different meetings, and feigning illness. However, the appearance of a woman named Marla Singer throws the narrator's system out of whack. He recognizes her as a tourist having seen her at multiple meetings including testicular cancer and he is disturbed by her lies to the point where he can't sleep anymore okay lot to unpack yes there is <laughs> again i mentioned this earlier it's amazing how boring they make life look at the beginning of this it came out around at the same time as the matrix which also did a similar thing they must have been something as a culture that made us think that we're all part of some magical machine just going through life. We're like our, I, I used to say, just running on the hamster wheel. Yes. Uh, I do love the fact this whole apartment is Ikea furniture. <laughs> That's a lot of money. <laughs> I just love the fact that it's, it's got, going through, you see every single price of yeah. everything in his apartment. <laughs> yep. Just have it just to have it because he's got nothing else. He's addicted to it. The only thing that throughout this whole thing that I could not buy in I haven't slept for six months. I don't buy that. The body would just shut down and you'd have to sleep. Yeah. Well, but I think that was more like a figure of speech. That's the thing is the blackouts 
end up being Tyler Durden. Mm. Yeah. And is, is his, his is insomnia the reason why his brain has started to change to the point where it's gotten to this crazy? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, why would a doctor suggest he goes to a testicular cancer group if he doesn't have it? Yeah, this isn't a very... Uh... This is not accurate to what doctors would do. No. They wouldn't go, oh, here's a natural medication instead of a pharma. <laughs> well, the, the thing that did get me as him being actually a good doctor was just not giving him drugs. Cause I feel like back then doctors just did that. Now I think there's obviously there's more of a standard now yeah. because of the opioid crisis, but having him say, just give me something. No, take some herbal root and exercise more. He'll go to sleep. So yeah, I've had insomnia before herbal root ain't doing it. You need something to knock I, your ass out. No, I don't. I don't know if I think I've ever had insomnia. I mean, yeah. I stay up late, but I was never to the point where I couldn't go to sleep. No, I had it in two thousand fourteen for like a good three or four months. Didn't just watch this movie. <laughs> <laughs> uh, did you see the flash during the group session of Tyler Durden? Yes, I did. Okay. And I think that's the very first time I've ever noticed the flash. And I was just like, I, I, unless maybe it's just been such a long time I noticed it then, but this was a lot more prominent. I put it in there because I was like, Steve will miss this. <laughs> no, I saw it a bunch of times because they do it like three or four times yeah. before he finally shows up. Uh, we get meatloaf. Meatloaf is great. And I yeah, love <laughs> the tears are in the shape of a smile <laughs> on his shirt. Yeah. Well, it, it totally makes sense because this is what's this is his healing because he can finally release. Yes. Uh, yeah, this is the second Meatloaf movie we've done. The first one was Rob, uh, Rocky Horror Picture Show. Wow. Never seen it. Yeah, it's not worth it. Unless you talk to Josh. Really? He thinks it's the greatest movie of all time. Uh, <laughs> it's a musical thing. You know me. I know. Uh, his power animal is a penguin. No, I didn't quite get this. And they, they touched on it one other time because when Marla Singer was just like, slide. Yeah. That was the only other time they touched on this. So I didn't quite get this. So care to explain? I have no idea what it was. I think it was just that he okay. saw, like if you think what a penguin is, a penguin is a herd animal. You know, they stay in yeah. herds as, as and maybe he just feels like he's just part of a larger group and he has no control. And it really took me by surprise when the first time he sees a penguin, it's like a little kid's voice, slide. <laughs> it was, it just seemed out of place. I was like, wasn't expecting that. Well, it's also the look on his face when he sees it, like, really? <laughs> That's my animal? <laughs> <laughs> like imagine you, you, you go to that place where it's you're gonna see your power animal and it ends up being like a kiwi bird. <laughs> you're like- Yeah, that would be strange. Yeah. Uh, Helena Bonham Carter, Marla Singer. I said earlier, she always plays crazy as a bag of cats, but I bet as a hyena in the sack as well. <laughs> it's almost like a lot of her roles that I'm thinking off the top of my head is that kind of an actress. You know, when she was in Harry Potter, she was yes. crazy. Bellatrix um, Lestrange. When she did Sweeney Todd, she was just weird and strange. Yeah, um, but this in this one she's actually very understandable because she doesn't have that thick English accent. Yes, the Cockney's out of it. 
Yes. Yeah. So I, I, I liked her a lot more. And yeah, she's perfect for it. Not only I don't take this the wrong way, um, Carter, but you know, you got that face of a crazy. Yeah. <laughs> but if so. you've ever seen her cleaned up, she's quite beautiful. What movie would that be in? Um, I don't know. You got to look it up. I've seen oh, her on like red carpets and stuff like that. Okay. I know that she was in the live action Cinderella that I, I love so much. She was the fairy godmother. Okay. Yeah. I'm doing my research right now. There you go. Uh, we also get Tyler Flash number two. And it's when he walks out of the meeting and sees Marla walking in the distance away, Tyler flashes on the screen again for a split second. <laughs> well, I was going to say, they ha I think that was, uh, I wonder if they did that on purpose where it flashes on him while he's walking away. It could be. I don't know. I was like, he's just kind of standing there with his arm on the post like, hey. And I'm like, okay, that's flash number two. Got yeah. it. Uh, after one meeting, he confronts her. She argues that she's doing exactly what he does and quips that the groups are cheaper than a movie and there's free coffee. Instead of ratting each other out, they agree to split up the week and exchange numbers. Despite his efforts, the narrator's insomnia continues. <laughs> we get Chloe speaking at the sex anonymous, the uh, the cancer thing, and she's, she's such a horn dog. <laughs> yeah, Chloe is, she is a foreshadowing of what comes at the end. Yes. <laughs> when you're almost at the end of your life and you're at that point, you 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 just want you you don't want to hold back anymore. You just want to live your life and you don't really care what the consequences are. And that's the only thing she wants to do. She just wants to get laid one more time. And she <laughs> says, you know, at this point I'll take anybody. But I love that she's like hooked off of the the microphone. Like she's like, and I've got a I've got two or three dildos and I oh okay. <laughs> Well, yeah, then she starts putting her mouth closer so that she can hear because they're pulling him away. It sounds <laughs> awkward, and, awkward and distorted. You know? It's great. And yeah. then we get Marla and the narrator coming up with a schedule to feed their dysfunction. <laughs> this is so dark. You, you take bowel cancer. <laughs> it's so bad. Like, and it, it, I love the line where she gives, she says, uh, testicular cancer. Obviously, that's me. Says, actually, I have more right than you do because you still have your balls. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, she's got a point. Well played. <laughs> <laughs> On a flight back from one of his business trips, the narrator meets Tyler Durden. Now, we see Tyler one more time before this, and it's during the montage of flights. As the narrator is traveling one way on the mechanical walkway, Tyler is going in the opposite direction. As the narrator says, if you wake up at a different time in a different place, you could wake up as a different person. And that's mm -hmm. when you see him when they're going back and forth like that. Yep. Uh, but he meets Tyler, and Tyler offers a unique perspective on the emergency procedure manuals in the plane, and they strike up a casual conversation. Uh, the narrator arrives at the baggage claim to discover that his suitcase has been confiscated, most likely due to a mysterious vibration, before he taxis home. However, his home, a 15th-story condominium, has been blasted into the night by what was theorized to be a faulty gas line ignited by a spark from the refrigerator. Having nowhere to go, the narrator finds Tyler's business card and calls him up. Uh, I'm going to cut out my last piece I, there because I was revealed later on. The emergency procedure manual conversation. I mean, they're all calm like a Hindu cow. <laughs> but it's so funny because having just been on a plane, you go through that. Mm -hmm. And again, I never noticed it before. I was like, yeah, they're all kind of plain faced in all these. Like, yeah, there's nothing going on. Just hey, here's my little 
No, the oxygen mass uh, calms you down. Yeah, but I do love the fact that they create new ones later on. <laughs> oh, yeah, a little bit more accurate. <laughs> the but dad this, this, this... pushing the kid's face out of the way as he grabs the oxygen. <laughs> oh, they say to help yourself, but, you know, yeah. not in a panic mode. Uh, we get a cl another clue, which is they both have the same briefcase. See, if you see this for the first time, you don't even notice that. No, he I mean, says it. He goes, we have the exact same kind of briefcase. Huh. Yes, but you know, obviously, I mean, unless you're, this is where, this is a good thinking movie. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> Steve? And you know me, apparently I don't do well with thinking movies. <laughs> um, this is what I call a target-rich environment. <laughs> Um, I remember the first time I saw this and all of these clues that you have throughout the movie, you don't ever access. You, you don't even think about them. No, no, because you're not thinking about it's that kind of movie. Yeah. It's like the usual suspects where once you see the twist, you go, crap, I got to watch this whole thing all over again. Yeah. And the fight club is this, that's the distraction for everything. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, he does. He, he picks up Marla Singer's number and he calls her up but hangs up after she picks it up. I don't understand why he didn't just like ask her instead of calling Tyler, who he just met. Because mm -hmm. he was all about the single serving friend. Yeah, I, and that's definitely her. Unless, yeah, I don't know. Unless he, did, he feels like he would be caught up with her and Tyler is just like a... A fun escape? Yeah, I guess it's a good to develop a bromance, which is exactly what they develop. Well, yeah, because Tyler says later on, I'm everything you're not. Another clue. Right. Uh, they meet in a parking lot behind a bar where Tyler invites the narrator to ask to come live with him on one condition, that the narrator hit Tyler as hard as he can. Before this, he describes Tyler. Tyler is a soap salesman. If he's not working nights as a projectionist and slipping bits of porn between reels, the narrator, though puzzled, complies and they engage in a fist fight before sharing a couple of drinks. The experience is surprisingly euphoric and the narrator and Tyler return to Tyler's dilapidated house where it's clear that Tyler is squatting. Mm -hmm. uh, nice Lorena Bobbitt reference. Cut off a penis, throw it out of a moving vehicle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do you think kids today would even remember what that was? No. Yeah. No, uh, not even. You get the quote, the things you own end up owning you. Yeah, he owns Tyler Durden and Durden owns him. <laughs> yes, I think I, I like that quote better than all the other ones that, that we had earlier. Yeah, that is a good one. I like that. Uh, I do love the fact that Tyler is a night person that the narrator has insomnia. So he's awake mm -hmm. in the nighttime. Clue. Yep. Yep. <laughs> and okay, let's talk about this house. First of all, it's a shithole. Is it? It's got a bunch of nice furniture in there. That's some old- oh, Wait, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I'm thinking of the condo. My yeah, house. no, we're talking house. about okay. Tyler's house. Tyler's house. Yeah. Okay. Oh, it is a complete condemned dump. Which is weird because it's got running gas, water, and electricity. Someone must be paying the bills on it. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> well, he is, because he bought it. Who bought it? He just doesn't, the narrator. But that would mean that he would know that he's paying bills on a separate home before then. But he doesn't know because he hasn't. It, it's insomnia. It's that place between awake and sleep where you don't even know what you're, what the hell's going on. Okay, but when you get your mail, you get it during the day. You notice that there's two power bills. You might be having some questions. 
I might have it on auto. Hey. hey. I think you're looking for reasons here. Oh, that's what this movie can do. It's like that's you can just play the insomnia card where you just don't even know what the hell is going on. I mean, hell, he's clearly delusional. He's got Tyler Durden with him. <laughs> so he doesn't know how what's going on half the time. Uh, you know? So what do you think of Tyler and uh, narrator's fight? So <laughs> it was, uh, I, I mean, it's a good start. Their initial the fight in the bar parking lot. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I liked it. In the fact that it really, I was nervous for the narrator because he didn't obviously didn't want to hit him. And I forgot he hits him in the ear. Yes, he does. I thought he just like, <laughs> thought he just like taps him in the shoulder. And Tyler was like, really? That's all you can do? But he's like, I want you to hit me as hard as you can. And then I love the acting with um, Brad Pitt where he's just kind of stopped. He goes, Okay, good. <laughs> you know, he's jumping up and down, getting himself hyped up for it. He says, you do whatever you want. I don't care. He says, anything but the ear. Right, right, right. <laughs> you know, but I thought it was cool. And then all of a sudden, Tyler hits him and he goes, can you hit me again? I was like, okay. Here we go. This is where, this is where it starts. So, no, I liked it. It was cool. It was a good introduction to what Fight Club is going to be. I think what I liked most about it was the fact that the punch sounded like an actual punch where it wasn't like an Indiana Jones punch where that one of those. Yeah, there was no like, uh, it for felt, lack of a better word, like an echo. Punch. No, yeah, it was just felt like that. Yeah, it was a flat, it was a flat sound. It was that, and that's what fists sound like when they hit flesh. It doesn't sound like mm -hmm. a cannon blowing off like an Indiana Jones, which I've been rewatching lately. And every time he throws a punch, I go, is he cocking his arm beforehand? What What, what is this? <laughs> I think that's just an indie thing. Yeah. Uh, Tyler and the narrator engage in more fights over the coming days, and they soon attract the attention of other tough guys, finding their little fighting group growing. Tyler establishes a formal fight club in the basement of the bar where they had their first fight. Membership quickly increases, and Tyler and the narrator fashion a sense series of rules. The first two being, you do not talk about fight club. The rules are consistently broken, with members inviting their friends to join them. Exactly. Yeah, time and again, yeah. Tyler proves his insightful, if unorthodox, and immoral views on life. Now, I remember how popular it was just to say the first two rules back in the day. You do not yep. talk about fight. Rule two, you do not talk about Fight Club. But everybody forgets that there's five, six other rules. <laughs> rules. If anything, when they started going through this, and I can't remember, that's like, there's actually quite a bit of rules here. Yeah. Someone yells stop, goes limp, taps out, the fight is over. Okay. Only two guys to a fight. One fight at a time, fellas. No shirts, no shoes. Fights will go on as long as they have to. And if this is your first night at Fight Club, you have to fight. I think these are great. I mean, I almost want to have this hanging in my classroom. <laughs> Do it a little, a little modified, but yeah, I mean, yeah. I think it literally covers all the bases, but leaves it wide open at the same time. Rule number one, you do not talk about what happens in this classroom. Rule number two, you do not talk about what's happening in this classroom. <laughs> Someone yells stop, goes limp, taps out. The math is over. <laughs> you could make this a math thing or a PE thing. You could do it for PE. Uh, I'm, I'm sticking with the math thing. <laughs> Only two How guys to a problem. <laughs> two guys to a problem. Okay. Yeah. One math uh, problem at a time. One problem. One problem at a time. Yep. Uh, must have your shirt, shirt and shoes on. <laughs> <laughs> Almost like we'd have to remind them. 
Uh, math problems will go on as long as they have to. Mm -hmm. And if this is your first day in math class, you have to do some math. Yes. There you go. We got them all. Okay. Uh, the narrator meets up with Marla by chance, telling her that he hasn't attended any other meetings because he's joined a new support group for men only. While he still treats her with mild contempt, it's clear that he considers her with interest. When she overdoses on Xanax, she calls the narrator who, tired of her rambling, sets the phone down. <laughs> He discovers later that Tyler picked up the phone, followed the call to Marla's home, and brought her back to the house where they engaged in sex, much to the narrator's disgust. The next morning in the kitchen, Marla finds the narrator who is astonished to see her in his house. The narrator's astonishment insults her, and she leaves in disgust. After she leaves, he enters the kitchen and joyfully reveals that he and Marla had sex the night before. He also gravely makes the narrator promise that he'll never mention Tyler uh, to Marla ever again. That's an important rule. You can't break that one. Yes. Um, Marla missed the narrator. She did a little bit. Yeah. And I do love that when the narrator's on the phone with Marla, Tyler's in the background with nunchucks practicing fighting. Yeah, that was... Brad Pitt just, must have had a ball with this role. Oh, yeah. I mean, he got to be on all ends of the spectrum here. Yeah. And uh, honestly, watching... Um, watching everything that he's doing, it's no... I can see completely why he is so cut in this movie. Like, oh, yeah. that guy is chiseled like out of marble. Mm-hmm. And this is where the, this is what brought some of the ladies in to watch this. Oh, Because yeah. the times where he even, like, show him just above, you know, his pecker there. Just <laughs> um, we also Just when he opens up the door after they've had sex umpteen times and he's got rubber gloves on and a broom. It's like, what the hell is going on? <laughs> well, um, we get the sexual montage, which is pretty trippy. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> oh, 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 <laughs> What is that from? <laughs> it's Little Shop of Horrors. <laughs> Oh, well, a movie I've never seen. It's Bill Murray when he's in the dentist chair. Oh, okay. okay he's, yeah, you. he's getting drilled. and uh, Okay, knowing the spoiler, KTS, it makes sense that Tyler doesn't enter the room until Marla leaves. Yes. But it also explains why Marla is pissed at the narrator for asking her why she's still there. <laughs> yeah, because she's talking to Tyler. When you watch this back again, knowing the, the spoiler, you'll laugh at parts you didn't initially laugh at. Oh, agreed. Because yeah. you were just confused, just like uh, just like Marla was. Uh, then he goes, and there's things that Marla says that are completely unorthodox. One of them is, "My God, I haven't been fucked like that since grade school." <laughs> That's like something that you find on a. Oh, what did I just play on? That's like something you'd find on what that 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 card game that you play. What like with friends? Oh, Cards Against Humanity. Yeah, <laughs> it's like one of those. It's like, oh god, yeah. But the comedy in this is so biting that it hits you out of left field. Like you're like, oh well, how how bad could she be? And then she says that, and you're like, oh Jesus Christ. 
Yeah, and it's not just forced comedy. It blends in really well. Yeah, it does. Uh, when the narrator is hearing them have sex over and over again, he has the option to move to a different room, but he doesn't. This could be because he can't dis- he can disassociate from the action, but he's still present at the same time. So no matter what, he, he's away from it, but it's happening. He can hear it. Yeah. Uh, and then he goes and interrupts them, and Tyler's opening the door to their little sexual cave, and he's wearing dishwashing gloves. <laughs> yeah, and he's just like, what are you doing? You want to finish her off? <laughs> <laughs> and she's, like, falling and, like, can't even stand up. Oh, my God. And then Marla asks him, as he's closing the door, who are you talking to? Mm, there's another Clue! Clue! Uh, Marla is clearly attracted to the dysfunction of the narrator because she's got to know that he's crazier than her at this point. Uh, I think it's slowly getting to that point. And I think it's just, she's messed up and crazy. She needs, has to have that in her life to, I guess be, I don't know, want to use the word sane, but she's attracted to dysfunction. Yeah. And then it, it's not until later on in the movie where it just gets a little bit more than what she can handle. Right. Uh, that night, the narrator joins Tyler while he steals human fat out of the dumpster of a liposuction clinic. <laughs> that face. <laughs> God, that is like the worst. I, this is I why totally I want to make this a video show scene. now. <laughs> I totally forgot about that scene when it happened. and oh When he gets caught in the barbed wire, <laughs> it oh, just starts geez. to spill on him. Oh, God. Uh, Tyler says that the best fat for making the soapy cells comes from human beings. Okay. Back in the kitchen, Tyler shows the narrator how to render tallow from the fat. After explaining a bit about the history of soap making, Tyler plants a wet kiss on the back of the narrator's hand and then dumps pure lye on the spot, causing a horrific chemical burn. Tyler refuses to let the narrator wash the lie off his hand, saying that the water will worsen the burn and tells the narrator that the burn is a rite of passage. Tyler has burned his own hand in an identical way. Tyler also forces the narrator to accept allegiance to him and then neutralizes the burn with vinegar. Later, when they meet with a cosmetic salesperson at a department store, the narrator remarks that Tyler's soap sells from a very high price. Uh, That chemical burn scene hurts to watch. It does. When they did um, good practical effects because you can see the skin kind of bubbling oh. uh, as it does that. But the it's scene. just, uh, it, it's a brand. He's branding himself. Yeah. Yeah. But it's also, it's on the exact same hand as Pitt's hand. Yep. You on know? The exact same hand as everybody else. Yeah. Who uh, joins this cause. But I would say that this is one of the more iconic parts of the movie. Like the chemical yes. burn scene is something that we all remember. Yeah, and all the lines that uh, Tyler Durden says or Brad Pitt says are just, there's so many metaphors that go with that. And that this is one of his great acting scenes because he's just like, he's so laid back with this whole scene, Tyler Durden. Yeah. It's like, no, stop, just let go, blah, blah, blah. And he just, it's it's Brad Pitt at his, at his best. Well, and he just, how he memorizes his lines and reads them and puts it, just puts him on a whole page different actor. Yeah. You know, in this movie. It's well, it's great. also the give and take with Ed Norton. They've got great chemistry together. Oh, the, but one of the best in all of movies. Yeah. I mean, one I could watch best. those two over and over again. Mm-hmm. And even later on when they bring Marla into the mix, I'm like, I love all three of these people together. Yeah. It's a solid trio to lead a movie. Definitely. Uh, you didn't like the liposuction falling on people? That was fucking gross. 
I, I think that is even worse than the burning hand. <laughs> See, the liposuction, I, I think the part that I find funny about the liposuction part is that as it's on the barbed wire and it starts to spill on him, he's trying to push it back into the back. <laughs> it's valuable stuff. Right. And I'm like, let it go and just grab another bag. <laughs> and I, 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 at first I was like, oh my God, I can't imagine cooking this and the smell oh. of burning all this human stuff and boiling it and seeing it. And then... When he goes and sells it, the, the narrator says nothing like selling high price fat back to these old fat bitches or something <laughs> like that. And it's just like, that is just rebellion at its finest right there. Oh yeah. No, it this really is... is making money off old fat people. Yeah. He allows Lou, the owner of the bar where their fight club is held to beat him up before coughing up coughing blood all over him and demanding to stay in the basement. Horrified, Lou agrees. Tyler gives the club members a homework assignment. They will all pick a fight with a complete stranger and lose. The narrator says it's a much harder task than anyone would think. Bob accosts people in a downtown plaza. Another member antagonizes a priest. Uh, now, when Brad Pitt's, getting his, Brad Pitt's getting the crap kicked out of him, he starts laughing, and it is Joker-esque. Yeah. <laughs> that, yes! <laughs> It's uh, it's just this very slap happy. I can't feel pain, and I just like it says, "Oh, I forgot about it." And he goes, "Oh, wait, he hits him again. Oh, wait, I got it. Oh, okay, no, I lost. It. I lost it again." <laughs> <laughs> he just starts hitting him, and I, I'm assuming the guy like this is like a mob guy. Oh, it looked and like it. Yeah, he finally gave in just because Tyler was just going crazy on top of his face, spilling his blood. You don't know where I've been. Blah. It's just, yeah, it was very, very psychotic. I think the reason why he couldn't call anybody to get over there to remove them is because he is a mob guy. Yeah. You know, uh, what do you think of the montage of people antagonizing others to get into fights? The, the, the guy spraying <laughs> the water, water on people is, is, is freaking great. The priest walk by says, I think you just accidentally sprayed me <laughs> again. Takes the Bible, slams it down, and sprays the Bible. You know? Yep. And to get a priest to start a fight, that's pretty good. No, that was great. I also like the the bike. <laughs> it's just riding around. <laughs> yeah. It's it's a really it's a really interesting thing to think about, which is most people want to just avoid a fight. Yeah. And it's very hard to. And I think to myself, gosh, if that was me, would I just let it go and just keep moving, or? Yeah, probably just let and it go I mean, and keep moving. It is a great homework assignment when you think about it because of four fight club. You're going to start a fight, you're going to antagonize it, but you're going to make sure that you lose. Yes. Yeah. So it it was a good homework assignment. And that, I think when he starts doing the homework assignments, that is the training for Project Mayhem. Probably. Be submissive. Be submissive, yes. please. Yeah. Uh, after a period of days, Marla leaves and Tyler introduces the narrator to his newest hobby. Using his proficient skills in soap making, Tyler has turned the basement of the house into a laboratory where he uses soap and other ingredients to make explosives. Tyler and the narrator continue managing Fight Club, but this time at a much different frequency. Receiving flack at work, the narrator finally confronts his boss with knowledge about substandard practice and negotiates to work from home with increased pay to keep his mouth shut. When his boss objects and calls security, the narrator beats himself up severely so that by the time security arrives, they're led to believe that the narrator Narrator's boss assaulted his employee. I give you liar, liar, part two. So when I was watching this whole beating up scene, I thought of two things. Well, one, I immediately thought of liar, liar. And yeah. when the boss goes, 
what are you doing? I'm kicking my ass. Do you mind? I thought of that, but I also thought of maybe we're actually seeing the narrator as Tyler Durden for the first time. Oh. Because I wonder I wonder if the narrator is literally seeing Tyler Durden if he's having a fight with him right then and there. Okay. But we don't see it as an audience member. And this is the first time where he's not there, but he's going through the motions. Well, yeah, because he seems to grow a pretty big pair of cojones here to talk to his boss when he's never done that before. Yeah. So I wonder if Tyler's there, but the audience just can't see it. Because how he throws them and how he's interacting with himself. I mean, I know what he's trying to do. It comes off that way. And maybe that was Tyler's plan. Get you, you know, let, let's get in a fight right here. So make it seem like he beat you up. Yeah. But I we mean, don't see Tyler. So, it's yeah, a, it's, I like that. Smoke and mirrors, guys. Welcome to the movie factory. Steve has figured out the movie factory. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, with the narrator, Tyler Durden holds a college dropout at gunpoint and threatens to kill him if he doesn't pursue his dream of becoming a veterinarian. Okay. Go ahead. Okay. <laughs> this is where the movie, for me, starts to fall off the rails a little bit. This is dark. Uh, and as I've gotten older, I recognize that the destruction I'm seeing isn't carefree and dumb, but it's anarchic BS that can bring down a thriving society that these people have chosen to remove themselves from. Because of this, rather than find a society that works for them, they decide to mess it up for the majority. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, this is hitting way too close in 2023. Yes, times have changed since 1999 to now. Yeah. And... It now seems very narcissistic as we've gotten older, but I think that was the point. I think even back then when we watched it, this was the line in the sand. And this is when they crossed over. At least I can only speak for myself, but when this scene happened, I was like, okay. And I kind of exactly felt like the narrator. This, what are you doing? This is really crazy. And that's the point where the narrator started to buy out of whatever Tyler was doing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I think of that now, and I think I, the audio, it was meant to be that way at the at the time the movie was made. So when you say earlier, did we age out of it? Yes, I do. In the beginning, right. when they are doing all the crazy things, but it hasn't quite crossed that line. I do think of it as, yeah, there's no way I would want to do this now. Um, this is the most Generation X movie I've ever seen. Yes. In that my generation... And I think you fall into Generation X also. I think at least you're... You, 80, 83? Yeah. I think you're like on that line right there. But yeah. by that by this time, we are in our early 20s where we were raised in latchkey. We don't mm-hmm. like the system that we've, that we've had to go into. We got loads of debt coming out of college. And we're pissed off at the world. But the problem with Generation X, my generation, is that... We keep introducing new things that end up being a detriment to the world. You know, let's destroy all the credit card companies and bring us down to zero. Cute idea. Unfortunately, you bring home bring bring home a whole lot of crime that's about to happen. Yeah. And violence. Or even it, social networking was a Gen X idea. Mm-hmm. Look where it is now. It's a mess. 
Mm-hmm. You know, we come up with these wonderful ideas, but they keep backfiring. And I think this movie is, if you were to look at what being Generation X was in the 90s, this movie is 100% a reflection of that. Yes, agreed. Okay, Tyler eventually assigns homework to his recruits and preaches to them about the detriments of consumerism. Boo! And relying on society and authority figures. Yeah, they suck. They hate mom and dad. He proposes to revert back to the time where a man's worth depended on the sweat on his back and where he used he only used what he needed. The philosophy involves into what Tyler calls Project Mayhem, and the fighting in basements turns into mischievous acts of vandalism and destruction. Mm-hmm. The hazing of recruits as they stand at the doorway. It's very fraternity-esque. <laughs> oh, oh, totally. Yeah. Um, and I didn't even know that the first guy standing there on the porch is the new guy from TV show From. Yes, yes it is. That was a very young, I was like, wait a minute. I know that guy. <laughs> so that was kind of cool to see. But I wonder how disaffected do you have to be to, be, to want it to be in this organization? Would you stand on a porch for three in- days? No. No. I but Again, we've aged out of that time. We're thinking about that now. Maybe back then, I don't know. But I know man. this. When I was 18, I rushed a fraternity at Central. Go Chips. Okay. I rushed a fraternity. And here it is, initiation night. And they had us all sitting in a circle around a candle. We had all the whole hands, and we had to cover the candle whenever a fraternity brother would try to blow it out. You know? It's a teamwork exercise, but your your no. ass is killing you. You're, it's a hard floor and all that stuff. And one by one, they would take each of the pledges into a separate room to basically haze them, yelling the slogan, the, the all this shit at you and all that stuff. And I was one of the last two. So was, out of 15 people, I'm one of the last two. I'm sitting there the longest. And mm-hmm. I remember the, the, the president comes out and he goes, well, who wants to be next? And I go, honestly, I just want to go home. <laughs> he goes, what? I go, dude, I don't need this. Either take me in the room or I'm going to go. And I remember the other guy was like, dude, you don't get in. I go, who cares? And I let go yeah. of his hands and he goes, okay, Sarah, you're next. And I was like, all right, let's go. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what I was like at 18 years old. And I can't, and I was already someone who was kind of pissed off at the world. I could imagine standing mm-hmm. on somebody's doorstep for three days. You must really have some issues. Yeah, it's some that could be a little bit of brainwashing. Yeah. I mean, I never I wanted to do a fraternity, but I, the only reason the only way I would have is if at Central Michigan I thought it would have been really cool if my dad's fraternity was also there. They had a chapter there. Then okay. I would have rushed. But after that, the fraternity thing never appealed to me. So Yeah. I did it more as like somebody said, Oh, you should rush us. And I was like, Yeah, okay. You need me if you want me, you can have me, I guess. I yeah, the guys I moved in with were, were part of a fraternity. And I think if you're not exposed to that right away, then you're not interested. Yeah. Um, their actions do not go unnoticed at Project Mayhem, but Tyler manages to show the lead investigator that the very people he's hunting are those that they depend on. Waiters, bus drivers, sewer engineers, and more. They threaten the police chief with castration, and the investigation is called off. The investigation would not be called off. If anything, no. <laughs> it would have been hyper. It would have been. It would have increased. Yeah. This movie is off the rails now for me. Now it's like, okay, we've hit the point of no return. Yeah, because I mean, you pretty much let your guy go. If they would have like threatened something else, like we know where your family lives, blah 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 blah, then maybe I can believe that. And it is a great speech that Brad Pitt gives the police commissioner. Uh, it's missing the minority majority angle. 
yes, they are those careers. However, they are not the majority of those careers. They are a small percentage of those in those careers. Young people are so easily influenced by the echo chamber that this organization and others provide. And that's what this whole thing has become. It's become an echo chamber of all their things. And I think the world is like that. Okay. Which you look at what we're dealing with now, everybody on Facebook, they're only friends with people that think the same way with them. Or mm-hmm. uh, they only associate with people who, you know, like all my friends, they all think differently than I do. I don't give a shit. We're all good people. But there's people that surround themselves with only those that think the same way. And they think the whole world is that way. That's what nowadays, what friendship is on social media. You're my friend. Yeah, we just, <laughs> you're my friend too. The dilap- we are the minority. We are, yes. The dilapidated house where Tyler and the narrator live turns into Mayhem Central, where each new recruit is put through a rigorous period of initiation and training and where the latest plans are hatched. While Project Mayhem grows, the narrator begins to feel more and more distant from Tyler and jealousy sets in, making him go so far as to beat up and disfigure one recruit because he wanted to destroy something beautiful. Leto's face, Jared Leto's face looked rough. Well, after he beats the crap out of him, yeah. Yes. Uh, but uh, I was, so in the opening montage, when they're doing the credits, you see Jared Leto's name. And I'm just like, again, another person I didn't know that was in this movie. Yeah. And I was looking for him through the entire time. And then once the movie ended, I'm like, he got an early credit for having such a super minor role. <laughs> you know, but then again, there isn't too many names in this movie. I mean they have a lot they have a lot of extras yeah the only other guy I recognized was um the other guy in there who's from um uh that FBI show that's on Netflix they they don't have it they don't have it in anymore oh I don't know it was the origin of the FBI it was on Netflix you oh, mine hunter mine hunter mine hunter the main the, the older cop in there was also yes he was a young, he was the one that starts the phrase of he was Robert Paulson Yes, yes, yes. Him. That's who it was. I I could not figure out for the life of me who that guy was. I was like, I know he looks familiar, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, you put 35 more pounds on him. That's the guy from Mindhunter. Yep. Holy cow. You just, damn. And I'm sure if we looked up his IMDb, we'd probably recognize like, oh yeah, that's right. He was in this movie. I, I'm impressed right now. <laughs> As they walk away from this fight club meeting, Tyler drives a narrator and two members in a large Lincoln town car. In the rain, Tyler taunts the narrator, suggesting that he hasn't even begun to live his life to his fullest potential. When he allows the car to drift into oncoming traffic, Tyler scolds the narrator for being weak and pathetic. Tyler then admits that he destroyed the narrator's apartment. The narrator finally gives in. Tyler lets the car drift and they slam head on into another vehicle. They emerge from the wreck with Tyler exclaiming that the narrator has a new life based on his living through a near-death experience. Um, could you imagine being these two guys in the back seat <laughs> watching this? Like, you are you see the guy in the front talking to himself. <laughs> They're being good soldiers I'd and not asking questions. out. <laughs> I might yeah. even go to the point where I open the door and just fall, throw out and be like, I'll just take the scrapes. I mean, I even think the two guys in the back kind of look at each other like going, yeah. what the hell is going? <laughs> like, what's happening right now? Yeah. Like, is this starting to not be worth it? You know, I think you just kind of see that a little bit. At the beginning, they go, 
when you first watch it, you don't get that. But the second time around, you go, I'd be scared to shitless with these guys. Yeah. Uh, when Tyler disappears for a while, the narrator is left at home with an ever-increasing band of Mayhem members who watch television and laugh at their publicized acts of vandalism. When the narrator demands to know more about their mischief, one of them tells him, the first rule of Project Mayhem is you do not ask questions. Later, Bob is killed during a botched sabotage operation, and the narrator seeks to disband the group before things get out of control. He tries to find Tyler and discovers a list of phone numbers he recently used. The narrator trails the list all over the country, discovering that fight clubs have sprouted everywhere. In death, a member of Project Mayhem has a name. His name was Robert Paulson. <laughs> This is where the real, this is where reality finally catches up with the narrator. Yes. And it's now those two worlds are starting to meld and it's almost like an awakening is now happening. Yep. He's getting, he's not having his insomnia anymore. The, you know what it is? The echo chamber has gotten so crazy. He's recognizing how crazy it is now. Mm -hmm. Where he's yep. like, okay, we've crossed a line. Yeah. And I think the very next scenes is when he wakes up in his house and Tyler's gone. Yeah. Yeah. No, this, so. this whole montage part is the eye opening part for the audience member sitting there going, wait a second. Are they different people or are they the same person? Yeah. And it's crazy when they all start saying his name is Robert Paulson. His name is Robert Paulson. Then he goes to another part of the world. His name, name is Robert, Robert Paulson. Paulson. It's like, <laughs> holy crap. Yeah. At one particular bar, the bartender addresses the narrator as sir, which prompts the narrator to ask him if he knows him. The bartender, after being assured that he's not being put through a test, tells the narrator that he is Tyler Durden. In shock. <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> and then we get Ed Norton's scramble fest. In yes. shock, the narrator returns to his hotel room and calls up Marla, ask her, asking if they've ever had sex. Though irritated, Marla confirms their relationship and states that she knows him as Tyler Durden. Marla hangs up and Tyler suddenly appears in the room and confronts the narrator, telling him he broke his promise to not speak about Tyler to Marla. A few minutes of conversation confirms that they are, indeed, one person. The narrator has insomnia. He can't sleep. So whenever he thinks he is, or at random parts of the day, Tyler's persona takes over. The epiphany causes the narrator to faint. When he wakes up, he finds another phone list beside him with calls from all over the country. This is where everybody rewinds the movie. He goes, wait a second. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, I said earlier, usual suspects is one of my top five twists. This is my top five also. Yeah, it, even after seeing this movie multiple times and knowing the ending, it's still really cool to see. It's cool, and no matter how many times you see it, you're still a little bit flabbergasted. Yes. Because of how well it's been crafted along the way. You know full on, from the very beginning, they're the same person. But you get to this point, and Ed Norton's acting is so good when he figures it out that you're sitting there going, yeah, I'm kind of with you, Ed. What the hell's been going on, man? <laughs> yeah, as soon as he finds out that he's Tyler Durden, this is like the roll. This is like the roller coaster finally going over the edge and just dropping all the way down to the bottom because everything's just high pace with him trying to find out what the hell's going on this whole entire time. Right, right. And also, the bartender, that big rig he's got on his neck. Oh my gosh. I know one of the rules is when someone taps out and says, stop, you stop. It doesn't look like somebody agreed to that rule. 
Or goes limp. That was one. <laughs> Apparently he went limp. He went limp. Okay. Uh, he returns to his home to find it completely empty, but one bulletin board yields a display of folders detailing certain buildings within the financial district. He finds that each one of them has been infiltrated by members of Project Mayhem and that Tyler is planning on destroying them, thereby erasing credit card company records and wiping the slate clean. That's not how it works. In a panic, the narrator grabs all the information and reports himself to the local police. However, after telling the inspector everything he knows and being left with two officers, the narrator discovers that the officers are Mayhem members, and they tell him that they were instructed by him to take the balls of anyone who interfered with Project Mayhem, even him. This wouldn't happen either. The narrator <laughs> manages to escape by stealing one of the officer's pistols and runs to one of the buildings set for demolition. He finds an unmarked van in the parking garage filled with nitroglycerin and attempts to disarm the bomb. Tyler appears and goads him, but the narrator successfully disarms the bomb. He and Tyler engage in a fierce fight, which appears oddly on the surveillance cameras since the narrator is only fighting himself. The Tyler personality wins and reactivates the bomb, and the narrator brings himself to another building where they can safely watch the destruction. Okay. The final confrontation with Tyler and um, the narrator. Yeah. <laughs> Don't cut the green one. Don't cut the green one. Yeah. I told you yeah, not to cut was... the green one. <laughs> or maybe I'm thinking of the wrong one just so that you know it'd be in this situation. It was, a, it was very brilliantly done all the way, but it just, when he's in the room with the cops and then the one lead, um, investigator leaves and then he finds out that the cops are also part of it at that point it, it with him or the audience myself was like how deep is project mayhem yeah right it's just it's so deep this gang has just infiltrated everything right and nobody abided by the first two rules of fight club no everyone talked about close. this thing <laughs> <laughs> it was, it's, those are the, it's like, dang, you know, I know rebel, but they didn't even follow by their own rules. It was terribly done. But the only rules they abided by were the three through eight. <laughs> but being that it is anarchic, then there are no rules. Yeah. And I think the rules were um, the narrator's contribution to the fight club and that the breaking of the rules was Tyler's. That's yeah. what I think. Because the rules are set up to keep everybody safe and keep it quiet. But Tyler's MO from the beginning is he wants to build an army. That's uh, so the rules are still part of the narrator's way of keeping things in check and not crossing that line. Right. And Tyler is the antagonist. Bingo. We have lost cabin pressure. Okay, back at the opening scene, the narrator with the gun in his mouth mumbles again and tells Tyler, I still can't think of anything. Tyler smiles and says, ah, flashback humor. <laughs> <laughs> that was good. The and he didn't even say that. He didn't say that in the beginning. No. The narrator begs that Tyler abandon the project, but Tyler is adamant. He professes that what he's doing is saving mankind from the oppression of consumerism and unnecessary luxuries, and that there won't even have to be any casualties. The people who work in the buildings are all mayhem members, completely aware of the plan. Nearly breaking point, the narrator comes to realize that whatever Tyler does, he can do. He sees Tyler with the gun in his hand and realizes that it's actually in his hand. He puts it up to his own chin and tells Tyler to listen to him. 
He says that his eyes open up. He says that his eyes are open and then he puts the gun in his mouth and pulls the trigger. This is a cool scene. The bullet shoots out of the side of his jaw and Tyler is killed with a gaping wound to the back of his head. As the narrator recovers, members of Project Mayhem arrive with snacks and Marla in tow. Tyler had previously instructed her to be brought to them. Okay, ask your question because I think I have an answer. Okay, so my question is, why is Tyler's injury so different than the narrator's? I thought the same thing when I saw this. It goes through his cheek... But for Tyler, it goes out the back of his head. Yeah. And I think this is my rationale behind it. I'm, I'm, I'm a sponge. I'm, re- I'm waiting to listen. Just go with me on this because it's probably completely wrong. Okay. If the narrator is the straight and narrow guy. Okay. Okay. He's the one that's trying to keep everything on the straight and narrow. Yes. Yep. Tyler is the one who's a little off kilter. A little bit. And so, when he does it through his cheek, it goes to the back of his head. Mm, uh, huh? I can't say no to it. I mean, that's how I rationalize the scene itself so I can get through it. <laughs> yeah. And I, I mean, I thought about that, but then immediately I was distracted with the narrator's wound. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. Shot it out of his cheek. I'm just like, you are not fine. (laughs) It's like, how is this like, like his, he's talking different because he just took, and there's smoke coming out of his mouth. Right. You know? And just the slow motion of the blast. Yeah. Uh, get some gauze. Like, what? (laughs) All the gauze in the world. All the gauze in the world ain't going to help you out, buddy. Jeez, yeah, I'm so... Mm. Yeah, seeing Tyler's wounds, the Mayhem members leave Marla alone with him to fetch some medical supplies. Tyler stands with Marla and tells her that everything's going to be fine as the first detonation ignites the building in front of them. The others on the block soon follow suit and Tyler takes Marla's hand in his and tells her, you met me at a very strange time in my life. They watch as the explosive go off and the buildings collapse. Yeah. And that's all, folks. All right, because my brain's thinking. <laughs> yeah, think, Steve, think. Go, go, going back to his injury. Okay, so obviously the narrator shoots himself in the jaw. Yes. Obviously, Tyler Durden is a figment of his imagination, so he can kind of control exactly what it is. Maybe he wanted to shoot himself and go through the jaw to not kill his actual self, but seeing how he can control how he thinks and what he wants to have done. If he knows he does this, this will kill Tyler. And that's why it shows it in the back of his head because he literally killed him, but he did so, he he still shot himself in the mouth to save his own life. But it doesn't matter because he's imagining it going through the back of Tyler's head. I like yours also. I think both are rational ideas. I think they are as well. That's just another way to look at it, I guess. No, no. He can control how he's killed. Yeah. But in the end, the only person that really knows is David Fincher. (sighs) I want to see the behind the scenes now. 
According to the top critics at Rotten Tomatoes, it has a tomato meter reading of 65%. 32 fresh, 17 rotten. The critics on average gave this film a 6.4 out of 10. I did not read any of these because I wanted my reactions to be fresh. Okay. Uh, the critics consensus says solid acting, amazing direction, and elaborate production design make Fight Club a wild ride. I agree. Can't agree. Totally agree. Yeah. So here's what the, some rotten people said. Peter Rainier of the New York Magazine says, Fight Club rolls out its indictments and its zen cones, but what it really resembles, perhaps unknowingly, is the squall of a whiny and essentially white male generation that feels ruined by the privileges of women and a booming economy. Normal. I mean, ruined by the privileges of a booming economy right there. I, I, I can agree with that. I never I saw anything like, that was anti-woman in this, though. Exactly. No, I didn't see it either. Yeah, this guy might be throwing his own biases into this thing. Uh, Kenneth Turan says, if the first rule of Fight Club is nobody talks about Fight Club, a fitting subsection might be, why would anyone want to? <laughs> And Lisa Schwartzbaum of Entertainment Weekly says, if, as Fincher has said, this movie is supposed to be funny, then the joke's on us. That's not supposed to be funny. If I can't believe Fincher said this movie was supposed to be funny. Oh, well, this... Yeah, then he doesn't know how to make a comedic movie. No, not even close. Like, there's Jeez, funny I mean, moments I... when you rewatch it. Okay, it's now the audience... Yeah, the audience gave this film a 4.5 out of 5 with 96% agreeing it's a 3 or higher. Uh, so the audience is clearly high. That's the tall tale, yeah. Yeah. But the movie's over, Steve. Were you entertained? I was for the very first hour, maybe a first hour and a half, and then it seemed to drag on a little bit. And I actually, at multiple, I think at one point, I paused and says, how much time is left? And there was still 45 minutes. I was like, oh, my God. God, I couldn't wait for it to be over. Couldn't wait for it to be over. How about you? Yeah, I was I was entertained. The young person in me was entertained. The the 20-year-old that lives inside my body was like, yeah, down with I feel, down with it all. <laughs> but yeah, I feel exactly the same way. But I also recognize that the young person in me has an older person uh above him <laughs> saying, shut up. Just shut, just shut up, shut your mouth, shut every. Just take your mouth, close it, grow up, learn a little. Yeah. <laughs> okay, time to figure out the Academy and the, all the awards. Got it right. At the Academy Awards, you got one nomination for best effects and sound effects editing, but it went to The Matrix. Agreed. Agreed. Uh, Golden Globes, no nominations. Uh, Saturn Awards, no nominations. MTV Movie Awards, one nomination for Best Fight, which was Ed Norton fighting against himself, but it lost to The Matrix, Keanu Reeves and Lawrence Fishburne fighting. I'll tell you, those if those are the four, that's a heavy four. I don't remember the one in Austin Powers, but the Qui-Gon, Obi-Wan, Darth Maul fight was really good. The Matrix is really good. And I still think that Ed Norton fighting himself is really good too. I hear the thing. So, I know that I've said in the past that I agree that the Matrix should have won this, but I have to rewatch episode one. 
and see how good that fight actually was. Because a lot of us were watching that fight with Darth Maul glasses on. Going, look at that saber. It looks amazing. But how much of the fight of the three of them did we actually see? The, be I, the best part of the fight is very brief, and it's after Qui-Gon dies. So it's Ewan McGregor versus Ray Park. Yeah. The, the choreography is intense, and I'm visualizing it in my head, and it's so cool. Uh, if there is another awards ceremony, there's not the Raspberry, it's called the Stinkers Bad Movie Awards. And I've heard of these. Okay. I never heard of it either, but it showed up on the list in IMDb, and I was like, oh, let me see what these are. It got four nominations. The first one was for Most Intrusive Musical Score. And I'm like, we just talked about that at the beginning. Yes, we did. Yes, we did. <laughs> it did not win. Eyes Wide Shut won for that one. Uh, worst on-screen female hairstyle. Marla Singer from Fight Club uh, was nominated, but it lost to Melanie Griffith and Crazy in Alabama. But... Her, okay. She had some crazy hair. It's, it did, but that was part of her persona. You can't have nice hair in her persona. That wouldn't make any sense. Right, but it's the worst on-screen female hairstyle. Uh, worst on-screen male hairstyle goes to Brad Pitt in Fight Club, but it lost to Dennis Rodman in Simon Says. <laughs> I wonder if it's his buzz cut. Um, his because buzz he has two hairstyles. Because yeah. he has the classic NSYNC tips. And then he has the buzz cut. And the buzz cut looks terrible. It does, yeah. Uh, and then finally, worst supporting actress, uh, Helena Bonham Carter was nominated, but went to Denise Richards for The World Is Not Enough, where she played a nuclear scientist. <laughs> a Pierce Brosnan joint. <laughs> yeah. uh, I wouldn't say worst actress for her. No, no. I feel like they just, just put her in there to great. fill it out. Marla was one of the better parts of the movie. Yeah. Okay, time for top three, bottom three, Steve. I'll go first with my top three. Uh, my number three is the chemistry between Norton, Carter, and Pitt. I think it's fantastic. I'd watch these three uh, work together in any project from here on out. And it's a shame that they never worked together again. Agreed. My number two, the direction is awesome. Whenever Tyler and the narrator are talking to people together, the camera never shows all three of them talking together. That way we never see the person they are talking to looking at both of them. Mm -hmm. It's always shot at, oh, let's look at just what that person's looking at. And my number one, the writing. It's incredible. And they were able to weave an evolving crime syndicate plot as well as a split personality story. And it is an elegant feat to have pulled it off. Even so, that at the point where I just, as I watch this over and over again, I'm surprised every time when the reveal happens. Yeah. What are your three, Steve? Your tops? I think my number three is right in line with your number one. Doing a movie like this takes a lot of patience and a and build up, and it's one. It's like one big giant puzzle that if you have one little missing piece, the whole thing's gonna get messed up. Yeah. It is. It feels absolute seamless in how they piece this together. Uh, my number two, again, the twist is really, really cool, even after multiple times that you see it. And my number one, same as one of yours, Brad Pitt and Ed Norton, their chemistry is unmatched. I think the scene that extremely sells it to me is the chemical burn scene. Oh, yeah. And how they interact with each other. I absolutely love that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Time to vent, Steve. Uh, <laughs> and I noticed you only have two written down. I'm assuming you have a third one that's coming our way. Yeah, I'll talk about that. Okay, my number three. P 
people can age out of the message of this film. This film is for young people at 19, 20, 21 years old, disaffected and looking for a place in the world. As you get older, you age out of this. My number two, it seems way too easy for them to have infiltrated not just blue collar workers, but the police also just through a fight club. Shut up. Yeah. And my number one, I wish we would have seen Norton as Tyler Durden for some of the scenes in a montage at the end. Norton can turn on a dime his personality, which we see in Primal Fear. It was a lost mm -hmm. opportunity, but it would have also added an additional 10 minutes to this movie. So, Steve, let's get to your bottom three. <laughs> I could not wait for this film to be over. <laughs> I was just... And again, I know I watched it. I started this at nine o'clock, so it wasn't too, too late. That's early for you. But I was just, I, I couldn't wait for it to be over. Like I said, I think I paused it and said, how much more of this do I got? Yeah. And it was still 45 minutes. So that was my number three. <laughs> um, I think there was also the pacing was a little dreadful at times where I just, it's almost like I zoned out. Okay. And I don't know if it was like between all the sex that was going on. And then after that, I felt like the movie had its, a lot of highs and lows. So it was, I th that's probably where I thought it started to drag on. I couldn't really deal with it anymore. Uh -huh. And I think that really took into effect when it started to get a little too over the top, where they crossed that line. I was like, okay, what's going on? Yeah. And I really struggled to find another piece of this without trying to I mean, I agree with everything that you're saying yeah. with the, with your bottom ones. And it really struggled for me to get a number one. But I think if I think I have to agree with your number one is if and I don't think it would have added too much if when they do that montage of Ed Norton, Ed Norton, Norton talking <laughs> as Tyler Durden, like where he's giving off his rules and everything, I would have also liked to see him in the exact same wardrobe glasses everything as Tyler Durden. Yes. You know, I think that would have been really cool. I agree. And and then the movie just drops. It just stops it's, right at the end. Yeah, it's an abrupt ending that kind of throws you off a little bit because you expect something more out of that re revelation at the end. Yeah, but then at the same time, I think, <clears throat> what more do I need to see? Here's another 20 minutes. Yeah, exactly. And then again, <laughs> it goes back to my number three. So. Okay, time for the Creeks rating. We use A to F scale here on the movie planet. A, C is considered average. A plus is the highest. F is the lowest. If the movie is so bad, it receives Fs from all the hosts. It hangs out with Masters of the Universe with the global killer pantheon. So the question is, what do you give 1999's Fight Club in the drama movie genre by today's standards? So, <clears throat> this movie doesn't age well. When I say that, I don't mean that it doesn't translate to today's audiences. I mean that as you grow older, you grow out of this movie. It doesn't grow up. However, being that its audience is clearly post high school, pre-workforce adults, this movie hits on all cylinders beautifully. It knows its audience so well that even after 20 years, it still knows how to tap into the disaffected, the disenfranchised, and the need to belong in a world that is relatively new. The plot of this movie is created elegantly and with care. The direction of this movie makes it one of David Fincher's best. In fact, it's hard to believe that just two movies beforehand, he did Alien 3. Seven and the game is where he honed his skills and this movie is the inevitable climax of that growth. 
Fincher arrived as of 1999. In some respects, this was his magnum opus until he did The Social Network in 2010, 11 years later. But this movie has some problems also. As I said earlier, it has a very specific audience in its message, which can make this movie fall to the back of many people's lists of favorite movies because they forget all about it as they forgot about their many screw-ups in their early 20s. It also ends on a very dour note where the bad guys win, which is a hard pill to swallow. Yes, Ed Norton's character is finally free of Tyler Durden, but it's easier to take the turn if he was somehow able to avert the explosions. However, they just leave it as the ending they think the audience wants. I'm fine, let the world burn. In today's culture, this is too dangerous a message to give an A to. So, overall as a drama, I'm giving Fight Club a B. Fantastic film when watched responsibly, and as an adult, will put you in a time machine of how you thought back when you were 21 years old and pissed at the world around you. Steve, you're up. I agree with that. And I think that if you're seeing this movie for the first time and you're not in that young age group, I don't think you're going to like it. Nope. Um, okay, so I saw this movie in college and I felt like it was just a rite of passage. If you haven't seen Fight Club, you haven't seen anything yet. That's what I was told. <laughs> Seeing it now, I don't obviously feel the same way, but it's still fun to watch. And these types of movies, when you know that there's a massive twist, you always wanna just sit down and go back through the movie to see if you can piece it all together. That shock value, like it's almost like I felt like I was duped the entire time. <laughs> and then when you go back and watch, it's like, oh, you start seeing all those clues. It's like, then you realize how brilliant the writing was. Ed Norton, Brad Pitt are absolutely wonderful. Outside of American History X, this has gotta be one of the best films Ed Norton's ever done. That's a good one too. But the real great acting goes to Brad Pitt. He has a number of soapbox moments and he definitely does a great job at delivering those lines. I It did feel lengthy at about the hour 45 minute mark. Again, I paused it and like, when is this over? And <laughs> it just, it felt like it dragged even towards the end of the movie. You kind of didn't know how it was gonna end. So it felt dragged even though it was about to finish up. It's definitely a clever movie and it's definitely not a mystery movie. <laughs> not, not anywhere near that. Because I thought this was going to be a mystery thriller and it's definitely not there. No. Yes, there's a massive twist, but it but it was never trying to figure out who done it. That's why it's not a mystery. The stuff for me belongs in this stuff for me belongs in the drama pantheon with a letter grade of a solid middle of the ground B. Still fun to watch all these years, but maybe watch it every other year, maybe every three years. I don't know. Okay, well, let's revisit the Pantheon. So here's the Pantheon. We're gonna type in Fight Club here. 1999, and I gave it a B, not a 58. And Steve gave it a B, which is going to put it 
above I am Sam. I am Sam is number seven now. All right. And I think that that's an appropriate place. It's below Breakfast Club and Castaway and Sounds of the Lambs. Fight Club is what it is. It's not a timeless movie. It's got a time for yeah. when you were of that age. And, and I, you know, it, it's, it's definitely above average. Yeah. And no, yeah, I mean, I agree. It's just when you see Fight Club and then look at the rest of this, it's so drastically different. Oh yeah, definitely. It's so it's like, why is it even there? But that's the right spot where it's supposed to be. You can't put it in action. You can't put it in mystery thriller. It's, it's where it's supposed to be. You know, what's funny is if it was in the mystery thriller, I might have been able to, I might've been able to eke out a B plus for it. I think I could have figured it out because there are, there's a thriller element to it. There's an anxiety behind the movie. But I'd also- yes no. I mean, at the very end, when he finally finds out that when his worlds are starting to mix, then you go into that panic mode. Yeah. But I but also- there's no mystery. There's I, no mystery. Exactly. I could also find a way to give it a C in that pantheon too. <laughs> if anything, I think my grade might go down if it was in the mystery pantheon. Yeah, exactly. I, I I think, and if yours went down, I could see me following suit because of the things that you'd be putting, pointing out in it. I'd be like, yep, I didn't think about that. I didn't think about that. You're right. Drop it down. Drop it like it's hot. <laughs> well, the critics hats are off. Do you love the movie, like this movie or none of the above? Does it tickle your pickle? I still like it. I don't absolutely love it, but I definitely like it. What about you? Yeah, I I still love this movie, but I love it because it reminds me of where I was at as a youth. And I love it because I'm old enough to recognize parallels that I'm seeing now. Slippery sloped parallels at that. We're not nearly at that point, but you could see where it's going and see where certain people think sometimes and be like, ah, it could be a problem at some point if you just hang out with the right people. Yeah, it does. I, I when watching this, I, it does make me think of both sides of the coin. Um, yeah, I yeah. agree. Well, that is all we've got time for today, Moot Planters. Next week, uh, Josh will be on uh, in two weeks. Josh will be on for Bad Boys. Bad Boys, Bad Boys, what you gonna do? You can email the Movie Planet using the address movieplanetpodcast at gmail.com. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Podbean and give us a four or five star review. Like us on Facebook, Twitter, and follow our Instagram. The opinions expressed on the Movie Planet podcast are those of the individual hosts. The Movie Planet podcast is not affiliated with, prepared for, approved, or licensed by any entity that created any films discussed or reviewed herein. All movie clips and music included in the podcast are the intellectual property of the respective copyright holders. They are included here for the purpose of review, and no infringement is intended. Steve, any last words? Oh, well, again, I just like to have you for thanking for thanking you again for having me. Want to have on, me for thinking, sir? Happy for thinking. See, it's a thinking thing, and I, I'm not very good with the thinking, apparently. That's why you gave Doctor Strange the grade that you did. That's a thinking movie, it's, right? It's a bad defense for the eye of Agamotto. Uh, thanks for listening, and happy movie watching. Hey, bye. Say bye, Steve. Bye, Steve. You dick. <laughs> <laughs> and we're off.